0: Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, it's good to be with you again today, and I just got done last week with our Shepherds Conference 360 Conference, the annual conference that Colonial and Shepherds Theological Seminary puts on. It was a great time. I got to see my parents. They came down for the conference. My old pastor from Minnesota got to come down. That was just a lot of fun to see everybody, to fellowship, to meet new friends. I met a Outstanding individual from the Dominican Republic just talked about ministry and what life looks like in the Dominican Republic. It was just really rewarding to see the people of God in a variety of contexts. Got to hear a lot of great speakers. It's always a highlight to hear people like Al Mohler. You know, I, I listen to pretty much every single one of his briefings and his his daily podcast examination of the of news from a Christian worldview, as he says, and. It's just so rewarding, but then just to hear him in, you know, 45, 50 minute context is just super rewarding. So if you haven't ever been to the conference or heard of it, I encourage you to take a look at it. The website is shepherds360.org. That's shepherds360.org. If you want to find out about what you can do to attend next year, they still have a discount on the registration for next year, which is... You know already they have I think uh, over 200 people registered. So I think this year they had over overnight or over 800. I'm not sure what the final numbers were, but it was just a great uh, selection of pastors, church leaders, men and women from uh, around the country really and even parts of the world. so it was it was a lot of fun. So at the conference myself, I had an opportunity to give a workshop entitled Communicating Truth about Transgenderism. And it was really rewarding to just see people want to work through this issue. I mean, the room was packed out. We had, you know, people standing in the back and everything. And it was, it was great to have conversations both before and after with just people who knew individuals in their churches who were going through some of these issues. They just wanted more clarity on dealing with the transgenderism issue. And, That's important because in the Christian perspective, this is a battle which we are fighting now, and the battle for homosexual marriage, so-called, on the world scene has kind of come and gone already. I remember when I was working on my dissertation in 2014, the Obergefell decision uh, had come, come and gone, and... You know, there wasn't really much to say after that, you know, a lot of churches that were on their way to embracing homosexual marriage have done so. And those churches which have not capitulated to the sexual revolution have remained firm. But in one of the truest headline senses of today's Christian engagement with the world, what we see constantly are these headlines coming all over the place which really just illustrate the fact that we're fighting a battle in this world of transgenderism today. This is this is the next major push. And I think you can see it from a variety of headlines. Uh, I just selected a few just to, you know, kind of wet our appetite as as such. On the one hand, USA today had a article from May 2019 which says quote, nurse mistakes pregnant transgender man as obese, then the man births a stillborn baby, end quote. So the article in, in USA Today basically goes through the story about how a man comes in complaining of ab- abdominal pains. The nurse says, ah, it's not that big of a deal, puts him aside because it's probably just an obese man who's off their medication. Well, later finds out that this quote unquote man is actually pregnant, which means that she's not a man. And so she gives birth to a stillborn baby because the nurse had no clue that this was actually a pregnant woman that was there. And so, you know, it's just a crazy society in which we live where we can actually imagine this scenario now where you have a man or a woman pretending to be a man and the end result is deadly in the case of the baby. Well, you also have uh, indications from across the pond, as it were, in in the rugby leagues. We, we're not too much into rugby in the United States, but in rugby, there's a big, um, I guess, turn of events at at this juncture because there are a lot of referees that are walking away from the sport because there are men who have transitioned to women, and the referees are leaving because they're scared for the real women in the sport of rugby because the men. Uh, are it's easier for men to cause injury to the actual women to break bones, etc. And so a lot of referees are leaving instead of being potentially culpable for not being able to effectively guarantee the safety of the women. Well, also in uh, just even a couple of weeks ago, you had an individual by the name of Rachel McKinnon, who essentially defended the world master sprint title for cycling. And uh, the uh, uh, there was quite a bit of stir on this because uh, the next two finishers were biological females, but this is a transgender athlete who identifies as female, although he is biologically male. And this individual by the name of Rachel McKinnon uh, basically set you know these records, defended the sprint title. And in fact, I don't have the quote uh, in my research, but I remember running across it, uh, where he said, uh, "Anybody who who does not want transgender athlete competition is just scared of the competition, essentially." And. What a, what a crazy world in which we live where these are the kinds of headlines that we see. We see transgender athletes popping up in all the sports. Wrestling sports have made headlines. You have track. There's a, there's actually a lawsuit filed in Connecticut as reported by the Washington Times about uh, these two transgender athletes that got first and second and so displaced the actual female runners. You know, it's just, it's just a crazy, crazy world, crazy time in which we live, but if it was just athletics, if it was just these cultural uh, anecdotal occurrences where you know it's it's shocking, it's surprising, but it's uh, it doesn't really affect us. That would be one thing. But this is actually indicative of a larger push to that is really detrimental to the family. But also, it's going to be an onslaught of persecution against the Christian church. And this is illustrated, I think, really well by the fact that in 2014, Time Magazine came out with a article called The Transgender Tipping Point. And in that article, the author, Katie Steinmetz, argued that, quote, nearly a year after the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, another social movement is poised to challenge deeply held cultural belief. And in that article, as well as in other places, uh, what the sexual revolutionary advocates uh, state is that transgenderism is equivalent with the civil rights movement. So the skin color, which you have is the same as how you practice your sexual preferences. Now, as a, in the words of Al Mohler, a A tale of things to come, in other words, you have even over the last couple months a story breaking in the UK where a Christian doctor lost his job because he refused to identify a six foot tall bearded man as madam. And so this made national news. It was reported by the Telegraph, the London Times, and One of the things that Al Mohler states in commenting on this story, and again, I encourage, you know, all good Christians to listen to the briefing, obviously, because, you know, it's just so good for our uh, intake of, of news from the Christian perspective. Really thankful Al Mohler does that. This is what he says. Once again, we see the inevitable collision between the newly declared sexual liberties, which are so essential to the transgender and sexual revolution, and religious liberty. And you'll notice that in this case, as in so many others, it's religious liberty that loses. And his reference, by the way, is to the the story as reported by the Times of London, where it said that, quote, the panel stated that Christians should not be discriminated against their beliefs, but that Dr. Macareth's, which is the name of the doctor, that his views were incompatible with human dignity and conflicted with the rights of others, specifically transgender individuals. So what it's saying there, the Times of London was reporting, is that we acknowledge the religious liberty of Christians unless it impacts somebody else, unless it infringes on their rights. And by the broad definition that's being imposed here, if somebody wants you to call them a female, even though they're male, and you refuse to do that on religious grounds, which this doctor had done, citing Genesis 127, well then now you must cave your religious liberty to the sexual freedom which we are experiencing. And of course, as, as Moeller states, as, as others have, have observed, this is definitely a tale of things to come in the Western world, because the transgender revolution is being pushed as a civil rights issue. It's not being pushed as just a sexual preference issue. It's being pushed as a sexual, uh, autonomous uh, identity, which is equal with the civil rights push that we are familiar with in the 60s and 70s. So how did we get here? It's obviously if you were to describe these kinds of scenarios to somebody 10 years ago, even it would just be ridiculous and you'd be laughed off face of the planet. But I think it's important to understand just some foundational realities of how the transgender movement has begun making inroads in the culture. And that's mainly through the alliance of the LGBT network. Now, obviously, this acronym has expanded and, and contracted over the years. It's uh, LGBTQ, LGBTQA+. You know, you have all these different acronyms. So we're just going to use LGBT. And that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. Those are the four... Uh, what are labeled sexual minorities that form an alliance of LGBT. Now, it's interesting, obviously, because these letters, and many people have noted this, this isn't unique to me, but these letters, LGBT, are, are often equated in one grouping as a sexually oppressed minority, and yet each letter is completely different. I mean, you have the whole idea of gay, which is much different than transgender, you have the idea of bisexual, which is something completely different than somebody who holds to, uh, the, uh, homosexuality or, or their gay identity. All of these are much different and they're, they're dealing with different presuppositions. So we're dealing with transgenderism mainly, uh, in this episode, but I think it's helpful to acknowledge that this alliance only, only works, uh, because the minorities need to gather together to have this Uh, safety in numbers, if you want to think of it that way, This, this presentation of more strength. And this is actually kind of interesting because if you look at the statistics, if you look at the statistics according to you know, the Gallup poll of 2018, 4.5% of U.S. adults identify as LGBT. That's 4.5%, which is, which is a lot higher than it used to be, but still that's pretty low as an overall percentage of the population. And if you think about just transgenderism itself, according to a 2016 study put out by the Williams Institute, the transgender population is only 0.58% of the U.S. population. So transgender, those who claim to be transgender are not even 1% of the population. And so when you think about this and you look at these, these statistics, you say, okay, well, this is a very small percentage of individuals. And yet because of the cultural voice that they're given through the media and through all sorts of venues, Hollywood, it, Uh, many Americans have a perception that this percentage is actually much higher. In fact, in June of this year, Gallup uh, reported a statistic that said Americans estimate that the LGBT population makes up 23.6% of the American population. So think about the disparity of that. There's actually four and a half percent of U.S. adults identify as LGBT. And the average American, apparently, according to statistics, assumes that we have almost a quarter of Americans being LGBT because of just how prevalent it is and just the statistics that are involved with that. So it's pretty shocking. One, also thing, one thing that was also interesting as I was uh, examining this from a statistical standpoint is that among the millennial population you actually have a higher percentage who identify as LGBT and that's actually not that surprising in fact there was a 2018 uh, pop psych today article that was talking about how social peer pressure has resulted in many individuals claiming to be LGBT and you know you can just imagine a scenario uh, as it was reported in in the 2018 article where teenage girls After spending a significant time on social media, they came out, uh, as LGBT, uh, having been influenced by their peers, seeing all the attention that they're getting, the affirmation. And so there is a social dynamic to this as well, where no doubt even secularists are admitting we have people who are claiming to be LGBT when in reality it's more of just a social, you know, peer pressure to do so in one sense. And so we need to, we need to keep that in mind. Now, when we think about the main takeaway of, of this alliance in the LGBT, etc., we just need to understand that this coalition is largely an attempt to get a greater voice and to get this sexual liberation. And one of the things that how this played out, Uh, And and one of the books you need to read on this is uh, by Al Mohler. It's entitled, We Cannot Be Silent. I believe the publication was 2015. I'd have to look that up. But I think it was 2015. He has a chapter in the book, chapter two, which is entitled, It Didn't Start With Same-Sex Marriage. And his whole book, We Cannot Be Silent, is basically a history of the sexual revolution and just how it developed. And he points out four key components of this Uh, development or this revolution and what has led to it. He points to birth control and contraception. He points to divorce. He points to advanced reproductive technologies, and he points to cohabitation. These four hinges, if you will, have led to this opening of the gateway by which uh, homosexual marriage, transgenderism, sexual autonomy have all been ushered in. Now, if you were to look at the landscape of America in the early 1900s, you would see a society, a culture, which was largely influenced by the biblical picture of morality. You had churches that largely embraced marriage and would reject this idea of birth control and contraception. But as it became a popular push on the secular side of things, churches slowly began to cave one by one. And the first church to go was the Church of England, which became the first denomination in the 1930s to embrace and even make a positive argument for birth control and contraception, which was largely based on this belief that the world was being overpopulated and that unless we do something, starvation would take place. Now, it's it's interesting because the Roman Catholic Church continued to oppose birth control, but the evangelical movement, although we had separated from Catholicism, we largely, you know, abandoned any kind of defense of why uh, children are essential to marriage and and how that should be involved. Uh, This was largely an abandonment on the part of the evangelical church to realize that this would be an important issue. It was essentially and functionally a gateway to this overall discussion. So one of the things that you see Moeller pointing out in his his work in this uh, tracing the history of this is that the birth control and contraception largely uh, instituted a separation in thought between sex and children, which prior did not exist. And then you have this advent of divorce, which, and I say advent because really what I'm talking about is this no-fault divorce, which was implemented first by California in 1969. Prior to that, you had to have a reason for divorce, but this no-fault divorce essentially uh, advocated this separation of marriage and commitment. So each marriage now is rather provisional. And so you are in control of your destiny. And if you don't like the marriage you're in, you can get out. There's no strings attached. So now you have this separation of sex and commitment. And that's important as well. So divorce allows this this disjunction between sex and commitment. And then you have these advanced reproductive technologies, the IVFs and whatnot. And in similar contribution to how the pill or contraception functioned, now you have the idea that you can actually have children without even having sex. So whereas the pill says that you can have sex without children, now this advanced reproductive technology says that, oh, yeah, there's also a separation between sex and children because you can have children without the sex. And then obviously, cohabitation plays into this as well, because then you even have this complete dissolution of marriage, the idea that that's necessary, because you can just have uh, sex without marriage now, and children are a totally separate issue. So you've had a complete dissolution culturally of this idea of marriage being foundational, sex being related to marriage, and children being related to sex. All of those have been disjoined have been, uh, decompartmentalized and ended up being found as non-essential to the cultural idea. So what ends up happening then after all, after the dust clears is that after these four steps have, uh, arisen and, and become the cultural norms, if you will. Well, what we see then is the only thing left as far as related to sexuality and the family life is complete autonomy. So autonomy is the word of the day because autonomy relates to being self, self-governing. self So you're in control of everything. You're in control of even who you want to have sex with and how you want to have sex. You're in control of your family and what that should look like. You're in control of all of these things. And so sexual autonomy then becomes the hallmark of this culture in which we live. All right. So that's basically how this sexual liberation movement takes place and why we have such a freedom of expression in sexuality now is this sexual autonomy. But I want to switch gears a little bit here and talk about the presuppositions of transgenderism, because I think it's important to understand the mindset of somebody who embraces transgenderism or the idea of transgenderism. And I'm not going to say that these are this is an exhaustive list. I'm just going to give three. But in thinking about this, I do think these three are foundational in understanding transgenderism. The first presupposition of transgenderism is that God is not our sovereign and intimate creator. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who embraces transgenderism is an atheist or doesn't believe in God, because some people do. In fact, Bruce Jenner is a famous transgender advocate who himself has transitioned to someone known as Caitlyn Jenner. And he has been on record saying that God created him and he created him with a female soul. And so we acknowledge that it's not a complete denial of the creator sometimes, but I think that's where the two adjectives come into play, sovereign and intimate. Because to claim that someone is your sovereign, then, and specifically in this context, your sovereign creator, what it's saying is that. God has created you. He is your creator. He has created you. And he, as your creator and as your sovereign, then gets to dictate how you live your life. And so this is where that big disconnect between autonomy and God's sovereignty uh, plays in. Because if you are uh, in embracing the transgender revolution, you have to say, if there is a God, then he doesn't govern my sexuality. I have the right to choose. I have the freedom to choose how I want to do that. Whereas, obviously, as Christians, we would say, no, God is sovereign and he has the right and authority to dictate how we ought to live our lives in the created order. Now, that brings up the second adjective. He's not only the sovereign creator, but he's, or the transgender revolution would reject him as the sovereign creator and also reject him as the intimate creator because it's also essential to acknowledge that. God just didn't make a mistake or randomly make us and hope for the best. No, he's intimately involved in our creation and that there's a rejection of that from the presupposition of the transgender community. Now, second to that, and it works uh, along with that, is that the spiritual self is distinct and superior to our physical self. So not only is God rejected as sovereign and intimate creator, but also the spiritual self is distinct and superior to our physical self. So here a lot of people have acknowledged that you have similarities to gnosticism, uh, the early church heresy where you have the exaltation of the spiritual over and against the physical. And so you have emotions and feelings. They have the priority. It doesn't matter what body parts you have. It doesn't matter what chromosomes you have. All that matters is how you feel and what you want. That's literally all that matters. In fact, in describing this, I guess, issue, one of the quotes by Katie Steinmetz in her Time Magazine article in 2014 said, basically... Uh, one oft explanation that sexual orient, one oft explanation is that sexual orientation determines who you want to go to bed with and gender identity determines what you want to go to bed as. So what she's saying there in really stark terms is that you have complete, uh, you have complete autonomy in deciding what you want to do. And that's really the key is want, what you want to go to bed with and what you want to go to bed as. It's whatever you want. That's that's the main issue. And of course, your emotions, your feelings have the priority then in making that decision. And then obviously that leads to the third one then very clearly is that each individual is completely autonomous in his or her sexuality and gender. So you have the rejection of God as sovereign and intimate creator. You can have a God, you can have a creator, but he has to match your mold. You you have to have a God in your own image instead of the one of the Bible that dictates even sexuality. So there's a rejection there. You have the exaltation of the spiritual instead of the physical. Uh, There's a sharp disconnect there, whereas the Bible would teach the combined aspects of that. And then you have... The major takeaway is that you have the complete choice. 100%. Uh, you get to go to bed however you want and with whoever you want. That's, those are the only rules. Uh, as long as there's consent involved, that's, that's, a, that's all that matters is you can do whatever you want. Now we look at these issues from the transgender perspective, the presuppositions, and they are starkly contrastive. With the biblical foundation. On the one hand, the biblical foundation is God created each individual in his image as male or female, Genesis 127. And obviously that's a foundational verse. Uh, Genesis 127 says, so God created man in his image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So to put it bluntly, there's no evidence anywhere that there could be any alternative genders, Uh, There's no third gender. There's no 47 million different kinds of gender identifications. The Bible says there's two genders and that God is the creator and he has created each individual in that way. And that brings up the second presupposition from a biblical standpoint is that God is intimately involved with his creation and sovereign over it too. If we want to think of the opposites with the presuppositions of transgenderism, you have Psalm 139, 13 through 16. You have Exodus four eleven, John 9, 1 to 3. Each of these texts really emphasizes the fact that God's involved with creation. For example, Exodus four eleven reads, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So there, I mean, God is very clearly pointing out that he has made man in a certain way. And we can, we can fine tune this, this whole discussion even a little more because not only has God created us and he's created us male and female and he's, he's intimately and sovereignly involved with that, but also scripture is very clear that God expects us to live within his created parameters. And that's one of the things that, that is very important. And we even talked about this a couple episodes ago on just the foundation of the law, how the law benefits us and working through that is that The law helps us as it reflects not only God's character, but also it reflects how God wants us to understand and live within his created design. And so we can look, for example, at Deuteronomy 22, 5, where it says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, abomination isn't just a... You know, a flyby term, which is randomly included, that's a pretty significant term. This idea of the toeva, the abomination, is a is a reserved term for harsh, harsh disjunctions. And so, when we see it used here, it should you know cause our ears to perk up a little bit, saying, "Well, what's so bad about this? It's just a man, you know, wearing, or just a woman wearing a man's garment, or or a man wearing a woman's cloak. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but." How this is being used is to illustrate the point that God has designed genders to function within society. He's designed male and female, and they have specific roles. In fact, the actual wording of this verse is interesting because the phrase, the clothes of man, a woman shall not wear a man's garment or the clothes of man is actually a Hebrew word that's broader than just clothing and The Targums and rabbis actually took it as a reference to a weapon, for example. There are other interpretations in Jewish literature where this is taken as a generic reference for not just clothing per se, but whether it be armor or hairdo or other adornments which are characteristic of men. All of these were rejected according to uh, some Jewish interpretation. And so I do think that there is an element of word choice here where the word caliph or vessel or utensil is intentionally broadened to communicate this idea of a woman shall not be like a man with regard to what a man uses or what a man does. This is a biblical parameter that's reflected in the law, and it makes sense uh, as we think about it, because if God has created specific designed roles for men and for women, from and this will have to be another episode, obviously, but the whole issue of complementarianism, which holds to the fact that men and women are equal in value, but functionally different in roles. That is essential in the biblical picture. And obviously somebody who holds to transgenderism has to erase that. There has to be complete equality. There's no difference between men and women. And biblically speaking, that's just not, not a possibility for us because scripture speaks so clearly on the difference between men and women and their design. Uh, The illustration uh, I kind of like to give just because it uh, really illustrates the point, I think, is I enjoy watching football and, you know, it's just kind of comical sometimes the things that happen, but you could just imagine the absolute comedy of a scene where everybody on the football team just decided to do whatever they wanted and that they they observed no role distinction whatsoever. You had the kicker trying to be the quarterback. You had the quarterback trying to be the kicker. You have the placeholder trying to be the uh, linebacker. You just imagine everyone trying to do a different role than what they were actually drafted and paid for, and the team would be decimated, and they would never be invited back into whatever league they're playing in, obviously. Well, on a very... A simple level that does illustrate the fact why this is so important for God's design is if he has designed roles for men and women and then we just erase those roles and let men and women do whatever they want. Well, I think we're in big trouble and I think there's a biblical case to be made for that. And it's a self-evident point when we address it that way. Now, what's our biblical obligation? So. From our biblical perspective, we understand God has created us in a certain way. He's our sovereign. He's our creator. He expects us to live within the created order. Well, we have some obligations as well. And first of all, that would be we have an obligation to proclaim the gospel, which includes repentance from sin. And this is, at its core, the transgender movement, the homosexual movement, LGBT, is an attempt to redefine sin, at least from a biblical perspective, or I should say from a loosely, quote-unquote, Christian perspective. The secular world hates Christianity anyway, but this stuff tries to make inroads to the church. And in the church, unfortunately, there are quite a few adherents to this loose LGBT-affirming alliance. And they try to make it okay if you're transgender or okay if you're homosexual. Well, what you're doing is you're redefining sin and you're redefining God's standard. We proclaim the gospel. And in order to proclaim the gospel, it is inherent with it is a definition of sin. And so that's why this issue is really important is because we can't allow a redefinition of sin. This is a gospel issue. Second of all, we have an obligation to work for the good of culture and society. I was in a discussion once where an individual, I was just arguing about the insanity of transgenderism. And he said, okay, well, it doesn't matter. You're entitled to have your opinion. At least we can agree that you don't have to, uh, you you don't have to impose your belief on somebody else. And you can you can just let it go since it's not going to hurt you or anybody else. Well, unfortunately, there's just too much evidence that there is a harm that's involved with transgenderism, not the least of which is to the individual who is bound for hell because of their rebellion against God and his created order. So on the one hand, I can't sit by and let somebody harm themselves that way. But even on a very, very practical side, there's just incredible statistics about how there is a much higher likelihood for those who are engaged in transgenderism, who have even had transgender surgery, there's a much higher likelihood, upwards of over 20%, uh, much more likely to commit suicide, Uh, much more likely, over double more likely to uh, wind up in a psychiatric hospital. It's, It's just insane. You look at the statistics, they're very clear. These aren't statistics done by christians or anything like that these are statistics done by you know reputable medical organizations tracing and by the way that's also not there's no way these were studies done in places like sweden where you have this incredible acceptance of lgbt issues and transgender individuals so this isn't talking about rejection on a world scene or oppression or something like that. These are people who have been accepted into society, who have been fully embraced, and yet they have a much higher likelihood of being of committing suicide. And that's just wrong. That's uh, And from a Christian standpoint, we can understand why that is, right? Because we understand that this relates to the suppression of God, the inflaming of the conscience, the killing of the conscience, and there's going to be real effects of that. And so we want to call out and help the culture, help the society. We want to see our fellow man flourish and not literally die. And so it's not enough just to say, oh, you can just let people go and do whatever they want because we actually want to help our brothers and sisters in humanity. We want them to flourish. We want them to be better off. And this is just a stupid uh, delusion on behalf of, of individuals who are bent on resisting God. And so we need to uh, treat them with true love and point out where those we love are erring and are in danger. And I think that's, that's part of it. And then another obligation that we have is simply to proclaim and ourselves to be submissive to Christ in every area. And so we don't get to pick and choose where we're submissive. It's the, the whole package. If I were to tell a thief, you know, come to Christ, but you can keep stealing. That's not the message. If I were to tell a murderer, come to Christ, but you can keep murdering. Well, why would I tell a homosexual or somebody who's trans, transgender, come to Christ, but you can still be a homosexual or come to Christ and you can still be transgender. That's not the message of the gospel. As 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, such were some of you but you were saved, washed, redeemed. There's a beautiful regenerative experience in the gospel. And that's hope that we can hold out to others. And I think that that's an important message to give. Well, I think there's more I could say about all this, but I think that, that that'll probably give us a good uh, starting point for understanding transgenderism. If uh, I, I do know that uh, the, the MP3 of the... Uh, Transgenderism workshop should be online at shepherds360.org sometime in the in the next month or so. And so, if you're interested in in seeing the presentation, I also uploaded the PowerPoint from that presentation on my website. So there's some additional information and links there. If you have any feedback or questions, comments, I encourage you to shoot me an email, Peter at petergaming.com, or you can stop by the website, petergaming.com, fill out the contact form there. And if you want more information on the conference or on the Shepherd Seminary, you can visit shepherds.edu. Whatever the case, I'd really love to hear from you. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.